Jeff is a very precious brother. We've known Jeff and Miriam for a long time. Jeff, since when did you turn up at Canterbury? What year was that? 2001. 18, <laughs> 2001. We've travelled the world together. We have. Vietnam. And uh, he's a man who categorically is very obviously, he loves Jesus so much. He loves God's word so much. I know it would be a blessing to us what God's put in his heart to share with us this morning. So, uh, do you want to just spend a minute? We've got a couple of moments. Do you want to spend a minute just giving us a little pricey of who the males are? If you can do that in a minute. In a minute. Challenge. Um, and yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, morning, everyone. Uh, it's so lovely to be with you all. Thank you so much for, uh, for having us. Um, it's genuinely just love being with you guys. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm Jeff. For those of you who don't know me, uh, married to Miriam. We'll have been married 15 years this summer. Um, we've got three children, uh, Joel, Josie, and Caleb. Um, Joel is nine uh, and was on his year five residential uh, this week, so he's very tired. Um, so if you talk to him and don't get much back, that's why. Uh, and then Josie is six and Caleb is three. We have been in Whitstable, well, so we, um, we're actually not in Whitstable at the moment, we're actually living in Herne Bay, um, but we have been part of uh, the church in Whitstable um, in some guise or other uh, for, uh, I think, 11 or 12 years now, um, and you'll probably know that we were part of the city church, and then we launched out um, as Whitstable Community Church um, three, nearly three years ago, um, smack bang in the middle of the pandemic, um, which was an interesting time to launch uh, as a new church, but God's been very kind and gracious to us. Um, and yeah, so I lead the, lead the team, the eldership team. We've got three elders over in Whitstable. And um, yeah, things feel, things feel healthy. Uh, we're encouraged by the things that God is doing amongst us. Um, and I'm actually going on sabbatical in um, f- <laughs> four weeks, three days and, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, so beginning of May to the end of July, I'm going to be on sabbatical. So you may see me or us around a little bit more, seeing as we only live uh, five minutes around the corner. Uh, so I might sneak in uh, the back every now and then and uh, come and come and worship among you. Is that enough, Steve? Great, brilliant. Well, if you've got your Bibles, do you want to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark? We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 uh, this morning. Um, as Steve mentioned earlier, so today is Coronation Day. Um, we're not, you may think I'm a few months early on that, but actually when we think about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that's essentially what that moment was. It was the coronation, the public coronation and recognition of Jesus as king. And so we're going to be thinking uh, about that this morning from Mark's gospel. The triumphal entry is one of the few uh, incidents that happen in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four Gospels, and so we've got to therefore um, pay significant attention as to what's going on when Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so, before we get to the passage in Mark today, I just want to kind of quickly set the scene. I'm sure uh, most of you will be very familiar with some of this stuff, but just helpful for us to build up a picture of what's going on when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Um, to say that the kind of atmosphere in Jerusalem was bubbling, I think, would be uh, a bit of an understatement. So in John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and word of that has understandably spread, and many of the Jews have believed, 
in Jesus, and yet it's really upset the Pharisees, even more than they were upset to start with. And so you have these two responses to this raising of Lazarus. You have belief and expectation, and you also have increasing opposition. And so the Jews who believe go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, full of anticipation, looking for Jesus. And there's this kind of hubbub going, is, he, is Jesus going to turn up? Like, is, is, he, is he even going to come to the feast? So they are there because they want to see Jesus. And yet the Pharisees are on the lookout for Jesus as well, but because they want to arrest him and put him to death because they recognize that Jesus' uh, movement, however you want to characterize it, is gathering momentum. And that is starting to worry them, and it's worrying them because they are concerned that the Romans are going to see that, see that as a kind of Jewish revolt against Roman oppression and take away everything that is important to the Pharisees. So they're really nervous about this growing interest and following of Jesus, to the point where Jesus can no longer walk openly. So although it seems strange, he comes into Jerusalem in this very public manner, but just before that... John says that Jesus can no longer walk openly. And at the same time, it's the Passover celebration. So everyone is gathering, converging on Jerusalem to celebrate this great moment in Israel's history, to come and remember and celebrate their liberation from Egypt. And I think it's probably fair to say that the Roman rulers were not a fan of this Passover celebration. They didn't want all of these Jewish people kind of converging upon Jerusalem and remembering the time that God liberated them from evil oppression. You know, with that fresh in their minds, it made them nervous. And so you've got this kind of combustible atmosphere in Jerusalem at this time. And into this combustible atmosphere, Jesus is about to throw a match as he enters Jerusalem. So let's turn then to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around it at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we just invite you now, Holy Spirit, afresh to open the eyes of our hearts. Lord God, to see you afresh, to encounter you, not just to encounter truth, but to encounter you, Jesus, through your word. 
Lord, we recognize, Lord, that we are only here this morning because of you. Just in singing and celebrating of that fact. We thank you that you are so present here with us. And that your heart is so for us. And that you just, you want to speak to us this morning. And so we just say, King Jesus, we want to hear from you. Whatever you have to say. And so we just open ourselves, give us soft soil in our hearts to receive your word that it may bear fruit in our lives. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just three simple things I want us to think about briefly uh, this morning, and they're all about Jesus' kingship. So the first is Jesus is the promised king. Second, Jesus is the honored king. And thirdly, Jesus is the servant king. So let's start then with the first of those. Jesus is the promised king. Now, I don't know what struck you as we read through those verses in Mark, but for me, when I read them on a plain reading, um, I've got to be honest, I feel like initially Mark has got the balance wrong. Okay, there are 11 verses in this passage about Jesus' triumphal entry. Seven of them are about going to get the donkey. And three of them are about Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the celebration of the crowds and, and all that's going on there. And so if I was like an examiner marking Mark's kind of account of the triumphal entry, I might say, Mark, you know what? I, I love what you've done here, right? But you've just got the balance wrong. Give me less about the donkey. Give me more about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and all of this celebration. Okay, so we've got to ask, why is Mark so laboring the point about Jesus sending the disciples to go and get this donkey and Jesus riding in on this donkey? Like, why does that seem to be a massive part of the emphasis, more so almost, or at least on the same level, as Jesus actually coming into Jerusalem? Like, what is Mark thinking? There must be a reason why he's doing this. There must be something significant about this donkey. Okay, because Jesus has been journeying from Galilee, and he's, he's two miles away when he sends the disciples, two miles away from Jerusalem, when he sends the disciples to go and get the donkey. Okay, so why is he doing that? Is he just tired? Is it just like a long journey? He's like, do you know what, guys, I can't, I can't do the final stretch, you know, so can you just go get me a donkey to get me the last two miles? Well, no, there's something more going on here. Actually, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, as I'm sure you're aware, is highly symbolic highly symbolic. Now, Jesus gives the disciples very specific instructions around this donkey and where it is and how they're going to find it to bring it back to him. And so that makes us the question, well, how did Jesus know all of these things? Is this like another example of Jesus' you know, just supernatural prophetic ability? I know there's this donkey over there. If you go and get it, it'll be tied up in this way and bring it, and they'll ask you that. Like, does he know all this? Maybe. Could be prophetic. Could be supernatural. I think it's much more likely that this is planned, that Jesus has in advance arranged for this thing to happen, because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. Like, all of Jesus' actions are deliberate. I think what this shows us is that Jesus had been preparing for this moment. As he approaches Bethany and Bethany, two miles away, he doesn't just suddenly have an idea. Oh, do you know what would be a good way to finish off this journey and enter into Jerusalem? I wonder if anybody can find me a donkey. Guys, I think there's one over there. No, I, Jesus has been building up to this moment, and it's a very deliberate action. Now, Mark doesn't make a very big deal of this. Okay, Mark assumes that his readers will get the symbolism. But just in case we don't, Matthew helps us out. So if you want to turn very quickly to Matthew chapter 21, 
Matthew tends to like to spell out his Old Testament allusions much more clearly to make sure that there's no doubt you're going to miss the point. So in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 4, we read this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Okay, so this is a prophetic promise from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, about the coming messianic king. Behold your king coming on a donkey. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, he's not just making an entrance, he's making a statement about who he is. It's an unusually public statement that Jesus is making here. Jesus spends a lot of time in his early earthly ministry, actually trying to sometimes avoid the crowds. When people make declarations or statements about him, he acknowledges them, but then says, don't tell anybody else. So for Jesus, there's something different happening here. This is the moment. It's like when he's ready, he's going to announce and reveal who he really is. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, very deliberately fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy about the Messianic king, He is making a very clear statement. But it's a statement from which there is no going back from. And we're going to think about that a little bit more later. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of this promise. And it's very clear from the people's response. They don't miss the symbol. They don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Which leads us on to our second point. Jesus as the honored king. We read in verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and the others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now I'm sure the imagery of this spreading of the cloaks on the ground is not lost to us. We understand, even today, the idea of... um, putting something on the ground to allow somebody else to walk on it as a sign of honor. So with kings or celebrities, we roll out the red carpet, don't we? Yeah, and in olden times, um, when when the king or the queen was walking somewhere, if there was like puddles or muds, people would lay their cloaks on the ground so they didn't dirty the bottom of their robes. So this laying of the cloaks on the ground is a clear sign from the disciples and the crowds that Jesus is to be honored. But it's also a sign of submission. It's also a sign of their recognition of his kingship. So in the book of two kings, there's a moment where Jehu is told that he is going to be king. Elisha sends his servant to Jehu, and he says, God is anointing you to be king. And he goes back to this crowd of people that he's with, and they said, what what did the servant say to you? And Jehu basically says, he said that I'm going to be king. And at that moment, it says, all of the people who were with him took off their garments and laid them on the ground. And in that motion, there was an acknowledgement. Yeah, actually, we, this claim to kingship is legitimate. We recognize that you are the king. And so by the crowds and the disciples laying down their cloaks... They are honoring Jesus, but there is also this this symbolic recognition that we acknowledge that your claim to kingship is legitimate. What else do they do? 
They wave palm branches. Why are they waving palm branches? Well, N.T. Wright uh, suggests that they're waving palm branches um, as a sign of victory, as a symbol of victory. So um, about 150 years before Jesus was on the scene, uh, this guy called Judas Maccabeus led a revolt um, against those who had occupied the temple and basically went into Jerusalem with his family to claim kind of kingship over Jerusalem. And the people followed him in waving palm branches. And that's what Hanukkah is. That's a celebration of that revolution, that moment. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's happening is he's, he's joining the symbols of Hanukkah yeah, with the symbols of Passover in terms of what's going on. And he's bringing those two things together. And so the people are waving these palm branches in recognition that this is a moment of triumph, which is why all the texts say the triumphal entry. It's funny, isn't it? The triumphal entry. He hasn't done anything at this point. It's like, what's the triumph? But in there, in the symbol, there's a recognition of triumph, of victory as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And then we have the things that the people shout in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're making these great declarations about Jesus that when we read in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, we know that that really ticks off the Pharisees. You know, they're like, Jesus, you've got to stop your disciples saying these things. And what's Jesus' response? Well, if they didn't do it, the rocks themselves would cry out. Jesus saying, no, no, no. Their response is completely appropriate. And if they didn't do it, creation itself would proclaim that I am the king who has come to save. So we have all of these great expressions of honor, the laying of cloaks, the waving of branches, the declarations that this is the king coming to bring his kingdom. And yet the striking thing is that this is a Sunday, and by Thursday, the chants have changed. On Sunday, they were crying, Hosanna, and on Thursday, Friday, they were crying, crucify him. By Friday, all of the disciples who were walking alongside him in front and behind, cheering and waving and laying their cloaks, had all abandoned him. On Sunday, he was surrounded. On Friday, he was abandoned. And I think there's a caution for us here as disciples of Jesus that it's easy for us to hail Jesus as king in the good times where it feels like Jesus is really present and prominent and obviously working in our lives. And yet it's harder in those moments of suffering. That it's easy for us to wave our palm branches of victory when we can see Jesus working in that high moment of elation on the Sunday morning or at the conference when everybody's there and we're getting swept up in the moment and like, yes, Jesus, you're king. And yet it's harder in the moments where we can't see what he's doing and no one else is around and there's opposition or persecution and following him will come at a consequence. And it's easy for us to lay our cloaks down or lay our lives down to him if it means honor and glory. You know, you can imagine the disciples are well up for it. You know, on the Sunday where Jesus is coming in and everyone, all the acclaim is going towards Jesus and they're walking alongside going, we're with that guy. We're with the guy that the crowds are cheering about. But when the crowds are 
Chant and crucify, they didn't want to be associated with Jesus in the same way. It's easy for us to lay our life down when it means honor and glory, but it's harder when it means shame and suffering. But the point is, Jesus is king on the Sunday. He's still king on the Friday. Jesus is king in the high moments, and he's king in the low moments. Jesus is king when following him seems to mean glory and excitement and optimism. He's still king when it feels like we can't see what's going on and it means suffering and shame and rejection. Jesus is king all the time. So therefore, our response to him should be the same all the time. He's never not worthy. He's never not worthy. He's always due our honor. So we've seen how Jesus is the promised king, and we've seen how Jesus is the honored king. And then just to finish, we'll think about how Jesus here in this passage is portrayed as the servant king. To remind ourselves what they shout in verse 10. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm sure most of you know Hosanna means save us. Okay, the people are gathering around Jesus. They're gathering in Jerusalem for Passover. As we mentioned, this moment of great remembering, but also this expression of longing. They're remembering the time that God saved them, and they're coming together. And as they remember, they're looking ahead. They're seeing the oppression around us, around them of the Romans, and they're praying, Lord, save us. They're shouting these things anyway. But in this moment, they seem to be directing those shouts, particularly towards Jesus. Jesus, save us. Jesus, liberate us from this evil Roman oppression. And the good news is that Jesus has come to save, but not in the way that they thought. In that moment. If you think about Jesus, he's always subverting the expectations of those who are with him and even of those who are against him. He has come to save, but not in the way that he thought. I said earlier that when Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the donkey, there's no going back from this point. Actually, I think we could go further than that and say this is the beginning of the end. That Jesus knows this is the beginning of the end because he knows that making this statement, this public statement of his kingship, if word gets to the Romans, which it will do, is going to make them nervous and unhappy. And then from this moment, the very next day he goes into the temple and turns over the tables of the temple and basically rejects the way that the temple has been run and openly criticizes the religious leaders. And so that, although he's already got the backup of the Pharisees, it's like the final straw. So he annoys the Romans and he annoys the Jews by doing the things that he's about to do by coming into Jerusalem. And essentially what he does is sets in motion his steps to the cross. From this moment onwards, and in fact John chapter 12, right after John's account of the triumphal entry, is quite explicit in this because some Greeks come to, Je to the disciples and they want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, basically, that he says, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Yeah, the hour has come for him to be glorified. What's interesting is he says that after this moment of glory in the triumphal entry. And what he's talking about is the cross. And he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It cannot bear 
fruit. So Jesus is under no illusion what this action is going to lead to. That this is the beginning of the end for his life. And he's the one who sets that in motion. He's the one who decides now is the time. And perhaps, therefore, here we begin to understand Mark's seemingly imbalanced emphasis in this passage. Yeah, because the end of the story is quite anticlimactic. You know, we spend all of these verses talking about the donkey. Then we have a couple of verses of like, well, hey, Jesus, his entry, woo, crowd's going wild. And then we get to verse 11, where it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. It's like, it's building to this big kind of climax. Jesus come in, crowds are going wild, he's going to the temple, what's he going to do? Has a little look around, and then goes back to Bethany again. And you think, well, what's going on there? Like, it's a real downer. It's like a real anticlimax for Mark to kind of finish the story here. And actually, what follows in Luke's account is even more interesting. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 19, it says this in verse 41. So this is right after the triumphal entry, right after he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very next verse, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. At this moment of great high, Great acclaim. Jesus is king. He's the coming king. He's the promised king. He's the honored king. He's going to save us and liberate us from the Romans. And then he approaches Jerusalem and he weeps. And you have this downer. He weeps over them. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he goes to the temple and then he goes home, and then the next day, he will turn the tables over. But the point is, the glory of this moment, yeah, the glory of this triumphal entry, goes so quickly. It's really fleeting. And I don't think it's accidental that Mark presents it in this way. And I, re I think the reason for that is that actually, ultimately, this is not the moment of glory. You know, Jesus says in John 12, just as I quote, says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, hang on, Jesus, haven't you just been glorified coming in? No, no, no. This moment is passing. There's a greater glory to come. But the point is that Jesus is not quite the king that the people expected him to be. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to be a mighty warrior a political leader to overthrow their earthly oppression. But Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is a shepherd king. Jesus is a servant king. And I think this is where the donkey comes in. When we turn back to uh, Zechariah chapter 9-9, the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. So that Zechariah is building us up there again. 
I think, what's our picture of a righteous king, yeah, who's going to bring salvation? Like, what would we expect the next verses to be, the description of this king to be? Behold, he comes riding on the horse, riding on the chariot. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Think about it. It's such a jarring picture. <laughs> king. The one worthy of all honor and glory. The one who's righteous. The one who's going to save. Coming on a, on a donkey. Not a horse. Not a chariot. But a donkey. It's such a jarring picture. It's as jarring a picture as a king on a cross. Which is what it's pointing towards. A king on a cross. And yet this is the picture that Jesus very deliberately chooses. The picture that points towards Calvary. The thing, this thing that leads to peace that was hidden from the eyes of the Jews. Is that salvation's coming suffering. Salvation's coming to a cross. Salvation's coming from a king who's riding in on a donkey. See, interestingly, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to win a victory and to wage a war, but not in the way that the people thought. He is waging a war, but not against Roman oppression. He's waging a war against a much greater enemy, that of sin, that of death, that of the devil. He's coming to make peace. The prophecy in Zechariah 9 carries on in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. I will cut off those traditional methods of warfare and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, the picture of the king coming in on the donkey is the picture of the God who, is, who has established peace. He doesn't need to ride in on a horse, doesn't need to ride in on a chariot because he has gained and won peace. That there isn't warfare coming against him anymore so he can just ride in on a donkey. And Jesus is looking forward towards what he's going to accomplish on the cross. He's going to bring victory against the great enemy. But it's not just going to be a different victory from what the people thought. It's actually going to be done in a different way. Not just a different enemy, but a different way of bringing victory. Not military might, but humble sacrifice, which is what the donkey points toward. Yes, there will be bloodshed, but it will be his own. His own shed on the cross for our salvation. See, there is glory coming, and Jesus knows there's glory coming, but he's not going to dwell in this glory moment of the highs of the crowd because he knows there's a greater glory coming, but before he gets there, there's a suffering to be done. Jesus knows that the pathway towards that greater glory is the pathway of suffering. It's the pathway of the cross. And the same is true for each of us. That the pathway that Jesus walked 
suffering and then glory is the same pathway for us who follow him. And it was the same pathway for the disciples. They just didn't know it then. They wanted the glory. Yes, Jesus with you. And then when the suffering came, we're out of here. <laughs> and then Jesus graciously restores them. And then each and every one of them suffered after that. But there was glory. And so I just want to encourage you this morning as I finish. If you're in a season in any sense where you're experiencing the suffering, and all of us will at different points, hey, remember the glory. That what's happening to you is not unusual. It's not surprising. It's just the way of Jesus. Okay? The suffering and glory, they can't be separated. If we would share in Christ's glory... We must also share in his sufferings. The wonderful good news is that just as suffering and glory can't be separated, they also can't be compared. But the glory that Jesus experiences now is so far greater than even the greatness of the suffering he experienced. And the glory that we as his disciples, his children who faithfully follow him to the end, the glory that we will receive is beyond all comparison the suffering, so much so that Paul could call them light and momentary. And we all know what Paul experienced. <laughs> you know, when you look at Paul's life, the things he experienced, the beatings, the rejections, the stonings, you know, the anguish of his heart. On a human level, you would never describe Paul's suffering as light and momentary. And yet for Paul and his perspective, that's how he saw them because he knew the weight, the incomparable weight of glory that was to come. And so, friends, I just want to encourage all of us this morning to behold our to behold our King humble and riding on a donkey, to behold our King weeping and praying over a lost people, to behold our King that in this story soon will be silent before his accusers, mocked, shamed and beaten and hung on a cross to behold our king who will bleed and be pierced for our transgressions but to behold our king who will go through the cross to the victory beyond which i won't say too much about because i don't want to steal steve's thunder next week but we know what's coming the suffering of friday is followed by the glory of sunday and soon we will behold our king rising and reigning in all majesty where he is now. So therefore, our response, whatever we're feeling, to our amazing, promised, honored servant king, is Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Over to you, Steve.